to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. This is Nathan, a legal assistant here at SATC Law, and I'm joined today by Tim McCormick, the Chief Executive Officer of SOS Children's Villages, Illinois. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Nathan, I'm glad to be here and with your listeners and look forward to an engaging conversation. I was telling Tim before we started, we've been communicating with his team there and they're just really good people to talk to. So I really enjoyed working with your team so far and I look forward to our conversation today. Uh, Tim, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Just give us a little history of uh, if you grew up here in Chicago or if you grew up somewhere else, how you came to be here in Chicago? Uh, well, uh, the good Lord put me here. I was, I was born uh, here in Chicago on the south side, uh, kind of the story of, uh, you know, kind of typical working family uh, and uh, did my, uh, all my education here in Chicago. So like kids later on would travel out east, uh, you know, went through uh, Loyola University, both for my uh, my undergraduate, my graduate program. And um, I'm always happy to be part of Chicago. I wonder, but it's still home here. Yeah. And when we talk to people who are from Chicago or from the area, they have a real tie to the city, to the neighborhood, to, you know, where they grew up. Can you tell me about what it was like for you being a kid here and and sort of what the area was like then versus maybe some things that you've seen that have changed over over the years? You know, that's an interesting question um, because it also relates to kind of the work I do when SOS Children's Villages um, in, in our in the work side of the village, these villages are designed so that the child is at the uh, social narrative of a community, of a village, and how our homes are set. And I grew up in the south side uh, near 87th and Morgan, and this was before um, social media and tweeting and everything. And if the McCormick kids were causing trouble and, you know, throwing tomatoes from someone's yard or doing something, somehow my mom knew about that before we could ever get home because there was always kind of an eye on the kids in the neighborhood to what was going on. And people felt this kind of social responsibility uh, to engage the support of a child growing. So um, it's kind of interesting, that question, because, you know, I grew up where there was always eyes on kids in the neighborhood and people knew each other. And, um, you know, you always felt that it was kind of safe. And uh, in one level, even though there would be tensions and things going on. Um, and I, I think, it was like a lot of Chicago neighborhoods. It defined itself, but it knew it was something part of something bigger, the, the city of Chicago. And I, I know, you know, the city has its challenges in terms of how it's racially and ethnically divided. Um, and that's very true. But at some point, we feel we are all Chicagoans and, and make that move together forward. Yeah, and I, I 
want to speak towards that a little bit because uh, you said, you know, we're all Chicagoans and uh, Chicago is, as, a, as opposed to some cities, most cities probably, it's very uh, segregated still. You know, people kind of stay in their neighborhood. Certain people sort of are known to live in certain neighborhoods. Um, but I feel like in this time, and especially here this year, we've seen where, you know, these things don't matter as much as we thought they did. You know, people are starting to really connect more with each other, even if it is virtually. Uh, you know, the the neighborhoods are really starting to connect more. And I feel like people themselves are really starting to open up more to other people who they maybe wouldn't have before. Have you seen that same sort of thing in your community where you see more people being open to interacting with each other and people who are not like them? Yeah, I you know, I, I think you're right. I think as the virus has tried to pull us apart, we've seen the value of being together. And uh, I, I had a meeting earlier today in our organization about this because the motif is a village, right? And I've always felt, that, and I've been doing this 16 years, so I've been able to build these villages that we, we have in front of us today. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing we, we have in common is our mutual differences. Uh, that we all are unique in, in some ways, and that's that the differences that really can make us strong and unite us. And, and that's the one thing that we share. Uh, a, a brief, maybe a brief story on that. Um, and we'll talk more, obviously, about us with children's villages. But it, it's really a place where issues of orientation and race and that begin to melt away because there is this unconditional love. And, and a quick story, Nate, if I can. We, we took a, a child into our, our care, a group of siblings. This young lady came from Southern Illinois, and her, her birth parent would come up here. He, he was very racist. He'd wear kind of rebel hats. And every time the parent would come for a visit, this young girl who we were caring for, who lived with an African-American woman, um, the young girl would call this mom, this foster, SOS foster mom names. And, and I said to Miss Darlene, was her name, and said this, you know, she's testing you. You, you stay strong in your love. And you speak up the story, and it's, it, we're celebrating Black History Month. And this same young girl now, three, four months later, is now part of a liturgical dance of an all-African-American Baptist church. And she's reading a speech from Nelson Mandela. And Miss Darlene was sitting next to me in the back of one of our halls. And I said to her, if you've never believed in miracles now is today's the day we all believe in miracles and and i think it goes to what you were saying is there is something in all of us that want to stay connected and perhaps this virus that's trying to pull us apart tells us no we gotta gotta fight i was telling you about how i grew up in or was fostered when i was young but i actually did uh, i was brought to the united states when i was very young and so was really in a strange land didn't know the language didn't know anything and uh, thankfully, I ended up with a, an amazing foster family who eventually adopted me. But having been in the foster system for the the short amount of time that I was, uh, it's really inspiring to hear you talk about how our differences actually can unite us rather than pull us apart, because I feel like historically that is what it has done. But perhaps times are changing and people are seeing that being different is really actually an asset and not a hindrance to, to doing something really big and being something really Really big in the community. So hearing you say that is really inspiring for me. And I, you know, I'm kind of clinging on to that, hoping that, you know, other people can kind of see that same, that same shift. You, you know, I think Nathan, it, it, and maybe you're in, you know, thank God you had a kind of a good experience. But, you know, there, there's, there's four things that happen in foster care that I've seen. 
And I think it relates to how we're all living. I, I, said, I wrote a blog about how we're all living in foster care with COVID-19. One, what happens in foster care, there's 400,000 kids in the U.S. in foster care and 75% of them get separated. So you're separated from your own family. And for many of us dealing with COVID, we've been living with this, this idea of separation and being separated. This, the second thing in foster care, you're always living in the United States and most states is something called a 14-day notice. We don't have this at SOS Illinois. But a foster parent can say, call the state and say, I want this child out of my house. And that by law, that child has to be out of the house in 14 days. So children in foster care kind of live on eggshells, just like we all are living on eggshells with COVID-19. And then children in foster care also have to rely on the, the moral integrity of institutions. So the court systems, public guardian's office, the Department of Children and Family Services, th those institutions have to have some moral integrity that really care for them. And I think we've seen when our institutions have failed in their moral integrity with COVID-19, you know, what, what that causes. And, and then the fourth thing, and maybe you can relate to this the most, is everyone in foster care has to be resilient. It's no way to get through it. And I think what COVID is hopefully giving us all is this sense of resilience. So we're separated. We're living on eggshells. We need, you know, moral guidance from institutions and we have to be resilient. And I think it parallels a lot what I've seen uh, many, many young children living in foster care today. Yeah. And one of the things that I really felt and you spoke about it um, as far as living on eggshells is, you know, I, I tell people, imagine constantly feeling like you're someone's guest. It's like if you if you're living in someone's house as a guest, you know, you you're constantly trying to do the right thing. You're trying not to upset people. You're trying to make sure you put your dishes in the sink and, and you know, you're, you're constantly on your best behavior because you don't want to put anyone out. And, uh, you know, so I tell people, imagine being someone's guest and feeling like if you're not doing the right thing, you don't know where you're going to sleep the next night. And, you know, that it's, it's really tough because that is something even after being adopted is something that it's really hard to get that out of your head. It's hard to get that, that feeling, that thought out of your head and just say like, no, this is my home. I don't have to feel like that anymore. It's not, it's not as easy as, as it's just like, okay, I'm adopted now. Now I can just relax. No, you're that kind of stuck with me for a little bit. And, and it's tough. Well, you know, it, it's inter very interesting, Nathan, to, to hear you say that. Um, you know, I have kind of held at SOS Children's Villages, and, you know, it's it's built really upon five pillars. It, it keeps brothers and sisters together. So, as I mentioned, most children in foster care get separated. Um, it's an individual home, so it's not a group home. It's a particular home. Every refrigerator is decorated like the kids who live there and just like a normal home that way. Um, there is the full-time foster parent. So, you know, we go out almost as in the Peace Corps and recruit people and say, come and uproot your life, live in this village and, and be part of something and provide this unconditional love and watch that child's life get healed and transformed, but also watch your life get transformed. And, and then the, the, the fourth element is it's a village. So our houses are somewhat contiguous. They're, you know, together on the same blocks or down the street. It's, you're part of something whole, but you're also part of a community. And then we do a lot of prevention services. So we don't want to just keep, you know, we want to get upstream and help parents. We do a lot of family strengthening services. But going back to your point, what I tell children who've been in, you know, oftentimes in, in the U.S., 
most kids will move twice at foster care, and it's really not their fault. It's things that happen uh, within their fostering family's house that do that. And in our model, if you think about it, we create these homes. And I tell the children of age, you know, get understand it. This home is now yours. And if something happens and a foster parent has to leave or whatever else, those children stay together with their siblings. They stay in the same community. They're going to school the next day. They have the same social networks. And so the SOS model kind of turns the foster. It's very unique because it turns the whole system upside down and says all of these safety nets are there for children and to make it happen and to provide them exactly what you talked about, not just the physical safety, but the emotional safety that there's an anchor in my life. And uh, that's kind of what makes this thing work. Yeah, I feel like we we typically uh, get in a little more to your background before we talk about the organization. But I feel like in this conversation, it would really help us to kind of go ahead and move forward a little bit and talk about SOS Children's Villages, Illinois, because uh, obviously it's it's the blanket that's covering all this. And so we don't want to keep people in suspense too long. So, Tim, uh, first share with me about SOS Children's Villages, Illinois. Um, tell me about its mission and the heart of what it does. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the big picture is it's, it's actually began after the Second World War in uh, Austria. And uh, it, it's kind of the power of one, I think, Nathan, for you and your listeners. I mean, if one person believes something, they can make something happen. So this, this Austrian medical student, Hermann Germiner, saw orphans after the war getting put in boxcars and being separated as brothers and sisters. And so there's got to be a different way of doing this. And so it began in kind of the traditional orphanage model uh, after the war, and um, began to spread throughout Western Europe. And it is now the largest non-denominational child care provider in the world. So it has, um, you know, a little over 500 villages in 136 countries. Uh, here in Illinois, and that's kind of the position I have, um, we're, um, we're pretty large, probably the sixth largest in kind of the Western Europe model. We have four sites here in the Chicago and Chicagoland area. Um, we have a family strengthening center in the back of the yards neighborhood, uh, where we kind of work out of. And then we have three full villages. Our first village is out in Lockport, Illinois, uh, that is 30 years old. Uh, and there we have 17 foster homes. So if you go out there, you'd see kind of houses out there in that area. In in all of our villages, each home is licensed for six foster children. Uh, and then around seven, well, I've been here 16 years, so about 16 years. Uh, we built up one of the first urban villages in the, in the international model. Um, and so we have uh, 17 homes uh, at 76 in Parnell in the Auburn Gresham neighborhood. Uh, so that's our, our, so we have Back of the Yards, Lockport, Auburn Gresham. And then our newest village uh, that we built uh, five years ago is near Roosevelt and Racine, so the Lower West Side uh, Roosevelt Square community. And um, what I've done in my tenure here is really look intentionally, go in communities where there's high needs, where children are going into foster care, and they don't have to be exported out of their community. And we build and you know construct these homes uh, so that six children can live there, and that birth parents and family members can stay close, and kids can have as little disruptions as possible to make that happen. And um, we kind of work together to do really three important things. We, we begin a process of healing, uh, the emotional healing and the physical healings that may occur and, and, and goes on to not just a child, but oftentimes even the birth parents and so on. 
we begin to um, put tools in the toolbox of life, like you know any kind of parent does, I suppose. Um, and when I came here, I was really focused on continuing to be focused on education. Um, and so I kind of said to staff, anyone can kind of feed and clothe a kid, but how do we give them these educational tools? So in the U.S., only 48% of the kids in foster care, 400,000 kids at any time, will graduate from high school. In my tenure, we've been able to have 100% high school graduation rate. And again, every kid who wants to go to college um, will get to college. And again, when you look at the national numbers, only 3% of children in foster care um, will get through college. And it makes sense, Nathan, because if you imagine if you're getting moved a lot, your education process is disrupted, or getting into a school may take more time. Um, and as you begin to kind of you know, walk on those eggshells, you almost begin to distrust adults. And it, it, like I said, it's kind of a broken system in many ways that can perpetuate homelessness in youth, the juvenile justice system, and many other things that we don't do it right. So, um, so that's kind of what the model is. And, you know, the, the, the real challenge is, is always finding and recruiting the best foster parent. Um, because, uh, you know, I've said to many directors of the Department of Children and Family Services that if you get the foster parent right, if it worked for you, or your family testimony, that, that's 98% of the whole thing. It's really what the system gets about. So it takes us a long time uh, to set out, find the right type of person who will do this job and have this vocation in their life to uh, heal and strengthen. So it seems like along with literally just having a home, education is also key to you know, getting this, these kids to a place to where you would want your own kids to be. And that is, you know, healthy functioning adults who are adding something to society. Um, so education is a huge focus for you all there. Um, how have you seen kids sort of who maybe haven't had stable education or stable housing? How have you seen them come into that and, and sort of learn about the world and learn about, you know, maybe things that they wouldn't have been able to before? How have you seen them interact with even each other um, in terms of education and, and what what difference does that maybe make? Yeah, it, you know, again, I'll share some stories. Uh, uh, many times, you know, the brokenness in families that occur, the child will be hearing messages, you're stupid, you're no good, and all sorts of things, and it leaves, you know, scars, emotional scars. Sometimes obviously physical scars. Um, and so for a child to begin to kind of believe that they can learn in some way, and if you create an environment uh, where you can learn, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And two quick stories. Uh, one time in our Chicago village at 76 Parnell, a young girl came into our care, and she had been severely burnt and uh, scalded in a bathtub and so on. And so she was delayed in learning, and, and you know, this mom just wouldn't give up. And if Lotions all around, she changed the sheets three times a day, and this young girl began to heal and strengthen. And if you speed up the story, uh, she now went from two years old to being six years old. And then one time I was visiting the house, and um, she was, she met me at the door, and she had kind of just learned some stuff, and the foster mom was there. And this uh, young girl says to me, you know, Miss Tim, she says, I counted uh, our 
books today. She said, I, we have over a hundred books in our house. And I really wasn't paying that much attention. So you have a hundred books. She got very angry and stamped her foot. She said, no, I said over a hundred books. You're not paying attention. It was like, you're not paying attention to all. This is like, you know, hitting the jackpot in Las Vegas. This is a lot of books here that we have. And, you know, this young girl you know, began to really flourish and, and, and make things happen. And, you know, a similar story at another end of the spectrum, a young kid who, who um, came into a care as a sibling group. But before that, the whole family was living in a car and he was 16 years old. And, you know, he said, I was taking up too much space in the car. So he began couch surfing and doing that. And he was obviously failing and struggling in school. And they all came into our care and, and began, you know, kind of the process of strengthening and doing it. And, and, you know, you speed up the story and, you know, he's all honors. Was, he was actually academically gifted. Um, but because all these other environmental things were going on, he never had the chance to be that. And, you know, there's all sorts of other stories in between. Uh, where kids, you know, kind of just get through and break the barriers to be the first one through high school and things like that. But the, the point really of each of those stories is all of that potential is there. It's like a garden. And if you watch it, cultivate it, each plant and vegetable will come up a little different and be something different, but it just needs our kind of collective attention. That potential is always there in each of us. I think that's what the village becomes is that moment to really care and nurture. And, you know, each of us listening to this and Nathan, you and I talking, someone nurtured and cared for us in different ways. And we're fortunate. And, and that's what we try to do is bring together people for, for each other. And how do you sort of employ the community or the neighborhood to, to come alongside you and do that? How do you invite other people into this um, to show them, number one, what difference is making and, and number two, you know, what they can do to sort of, I, I guess, number one, educate themselves. Because whenever we're talking about uh, under-resourced communities or or even minority communities, you know, step one, I think, is always we, we need to get educated about some of these things so that we are coming into this from the right perspective and with the right understanding. But then number two, about how this, you know, that I think of that saying, it takes a village to raise a child is often obviously in your situation or with your organization is, is obviously very important, but how do people who want to be part of that village or maybe need that village, how do they partner with you in this, uh, in those two ways, learning about what it, what it means to be in the foster system and then actually figuring out what to do alongside you? Well, I, I think three things. One is, um, I've never seen the village as a locus, as a place, a, a village's mindset. And, um, and so whether you're part of that, you know, living in there, or if you're the next door neighbor down the street and not part of the SOS village, but really part of that, or if you're one of your listeners and saying, Hey, wait a minute, I, I want to see this. I want to, I want to journey to this. I want to experience that. I've, I've always seen the village as a mindset of, of care and compassion and strength. Um, in the particular, um, in these communities where we are in, I don't want kids who've been isolated and kind of neglected and forgotten and that to just live in a cocoon. So when we build in each one of our villages, we build a center, a community center, and we build that center two to three times more than what we need. So we just uh, built, we finished off a $6.2 million campaign and built a kind of state of an art uh, center 
uh, at 13th and Blue Island, Lower West Side there. And we designed it so that it would have a culinary learning kitchen, an academic learning kitchen, because the whole community comes in. So in each one of our centers in the city, we get over 5,000 people a year from that community where our kids and other kids, and it's, 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 it's that whole place. And um, one of the things SOS does in coming to the community, it brings in other people into that greater um, So we had one of the, the stars from the Chicago Fire, was a fine guy, the actor David Eidenberg, at least Herman on uh, Chicago. I don't say this, but I really don't watch the show, but I did watch it <laughs> when he was doing it. And, and, you know, just really good people and bringing people together. So SOS becomes kind of this magnet for people from outside the community to come in and then people within the community to come in and get those resources. This, this project we did in Roosevelt Square, we partnered with the Chicago Housing Authority because our homes are right across the street from the Brooks Homes uh, on, on Washburn Avenue. And, and so it's always been this idea that it is a collective force. And the collective force is really not our perfections, but it's our imperfections, brokenness. And, and, you know, what we can do collectively when we take all our broken pieces together is create a mosaic that is very powerful in telling the story of the strength of the human spirit to get through what we got to get through. And, you know, I go back to that resilience of, of what we need to do. So I'm very intentional about inviting your listeners and, you know, we'll talk about the you know, ways to get involved and look at this and, and getting there to come see what happens when unconditional love challenges all these myths we have that can't you know we don't you know we, we kind of hang on to and say no wait a minute this love is a force that can really break down barriers and and inspire hope you know can ignite uh the lights in children's eyes to, to let us see ourselves in the reflections of that child eyes even even more and and i guess for someone like you who's worked you said you've been doing this for 16 years and so you have to have seen this for a long time um I mean, that seems to provide motivation enough to to want to keep doing this and to to do it bigger and better. But um, I know the system is really tough. I know it can be really tough working with government systems to to move these things forward. So, what inspires you to keep doing this and to reach higher, um, given that the roadblock the roadblocks can be really tough? And I'm sure there are days where you're just like kind of fed up and and you want to, you know, maybe think about doing something else. What, what keeps you doing this? Well, you know, um, I guess it's a combination of vision and stubbornness. <laughs> Being stubborn Irish and, and believing there's something else there. Um, you know, I, 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 I get my strength um, from the people that are around um, uh, during this pandemic. Um, we set up a system. Um, I was determined because the virus kind of attacked the whole notion of a village, right? It's kind of like you know, stay away from each other. And we had to learn how to be with each other in different ways, but we had to be with each other. And and so, you know, every other day, my leadership team and I would meet on the phone and start zooming out a little bit later. And then every other day I had meetings with parents on the phone and listening. And the stories of inspiration, the stories of kids, you know, I, you know, oftentimes I know the beginning of the story of what happens in a child's life. Um, but my vision and my job is to really, you know, allow that life to, to, to grow and cultivate to what it can be. 
and and you know seeing how many sacrifices the foster parent makes, the child makes, the birth parent, you know, to get there is very inspiring. I I I, I spoke to a group earlier, you know, in the midst of this pandemic and craziness of Washington, people are generally good people. We we really want to be with each other. We allow systems and structures and leaders to try to divide us, and, and there are divisions. There's economic, systemic racism, foster care. Um, is is rampant at this portionality, but but people are good, and you know when we look at the movements around the world, you look at the movements here in this country, uh, civil rights movement, and so on. It was the brokenness of peoples that became strength, and I think that for all of us should give us hope. And even in this pandemic, with living with this uncertainty, is the the notion that there is a goodness about who we are, and we can't let any one person leader any system try to cover that up for us, uh, there's a goodness in each human. Oh, long answer. <laughs> no, that's great. That's, that's what I've been hearing from a lot of people is obviously hope, but also like, you know, it, it really drives you to, to kind of get a glimpse of it and then go after more of that. So it's really cool to hear, uh, hear a lot of people's thoughts on that and so thanks for sharing that uh i'd like you to share a little bit about your team there at sos yeah yeah i was telling you earlier um i've been blessed with uh people who are inspiring and uh starting up and down the organization um you know there are people who um lose sleep at night and worry and are, are you know making sure that all those resources get there. We're, we're a pretty flat organization. So we're a $12 million organization. So we're kind of a mid-sized not-for-profit. But between my role as the chief executive officer and foster parent, there's only two steps. So if you're going to be a village, it can't be very vertically extended. So I redesigned this so that there's only a program director, and chief operating officer, and obviously I stay close to, to, to that. So, you know, I, I think there's four really good characteristics I've seen people uh, to make this organization run the way that it does. Uh, one, obviously, is child focused, right? It's family focused. That is a principle and value, uh, and flourish well here. Understand that, and not the perfect family, the broken family that we all carry around with us in ways. And and so, you know, that really works well for people that I've seen. Um, the second, because we're not for profit and that very resourceful uh, to figure out ways to look at things, to get there, um, to say, well, all right, if not this, then we can look at that. And, and the third element that I'm, I'm really appreciative of people is the, in, in the reason to innovate. When I talk to people I'm hiring, I said, you know, I want you to change something here. I've, what, I, what I got, I've already had. So if I'm bringing you in, you know, question things, question everything. And figure out to make this better, and ask why. Get there, so I, I think that's kind of an important piece of this. And and then the fourth element is that um, we're patient, respectful. You know, um, not everyone can get where we're at at the same time. Do that, and I think the individual and the collective patience, patience of each other. And so, whether you're a therapist, a caseworker, a relief parent, finance person anywhere up and down the organization. And to celebrate that, you know, um, 
four times a year, we bring the whole organization together. We have this kind of all village meeting and, and gathering and we're going to do our first virtual one now um, because the virus has been kind of doing it, but we're, we're up to make that happen. So th- this is an organization. Uh, it's 24 seven. It's not a very, you know, not a lot of people, but we make this happen uh, because there are good people who are entirely committed to caring for children. Can you share a little bit about, you know, what that means to the children? Like, you know, your your sort of day-to-day interactions with them or your staff's day-to-day interactions with them, the difference that that's made. Um, just kind of knowing that someone there not only cares, but is working really hard for them. Have you seen that, like, really make a difference in the children's lives? Yeah, I, th- I think that happens in, in, in three ways. One, we really work at being respectful of birth parents. Um, around earlier about uh, foster care being kind of roulette wheel, but really your, your own parents, each of us can say, you know, I said to my own kids, get a lot of choices in life. You don't choose who your parents are. You only choose how to deal with them. Right. <laughs> yes. And um, I think for us, we're very respectful with the kids in our care of the role of their birth parent. No one wakes up wanting to hurt kids. There's stories upstream that, that creates that. And, and so I think we, we want to honor the birth parents, but we also want to get safe and manage that well. Uh, and I think that the second thing is that we, we offer a sense of stability, uh, you know, that, that the world doesn't have to be as chaotic as you might have expressed it here. And, and there are other kids. You can walk down the street or see other kids and see how they've been here. And if they've been here a little bit longer, you get to get an idea that this can work well. And, and, and so they say, hey, wait a minute, if they can do it, I can do it. And with that stability to, to, to get there. And then I, I think that the, the, the third element, so if we, if we respect where they come from, we provide this sense of stability uh, to, to get there. Uh, and then it's just a matter of letting them think and dream about what they can do. Uh, there's a young girl, a third year Viola student, you know, I've known eight years old, 21 years old now. And, and, um, but, but, you know, now she'll get, she's thinking about graduating and doing that. And so, you know, and they, you may, you know, that, that whole issue of attachment and detachment, what will happen next? And, and we try to instill in kids, you know, we'll be here at this institution and this organization and kind of be here, but you have the power to make this happen for their kids. Um, when kids get reunited with their families or kids move in, in the trajectory of their lives, um, that that's okay. That that's what success is, kind of taking that next step forward. Um, but you have to kind of envision that. You have to kind of dream. So I think giving them that stability, respecting where they, they're coming from, not demonizing anyone and, and getting there, allowing that healing to happen, and then, you know, igniting what that next vision of their life uh, is really what we try to provide. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's just really, it's really good to hear. And I'm, I'm so glad that there are people who are dedicating their life's work to, to making those changes and to really, I mean, obviously, I, I know what it feels like when you know that people are, um, are really pouring themselves into you. And so I can appreciate that. And we definitely appreciate that you're doing that. 
uh, alongside your team there. And so we hope that our listeners are inspired to learn more and also to partner with you guys, whether it be giving of time, talent, or finances um, to just really propel you into the future. And so I want to talk a little bit about the future of SOS Children's Villages, Illinois. And so share with me about your hope for maybe the, the more immediate future as far as we're looking towards hopefully getting out of this time that we're in and into a better time, um, but also the future, maybe in longer term of, of what you'd like to see and how you hope to change the city of Chicago for the better. Well, I, 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 I think you're right. I think the, the immediate future is we're, you know, um, we're going to get through this. I mean, we're going to get through it as a society and we're going to get through it at the villages. It, you know, it's kind of what I believe it is that good people, when called together, do great things. Um, and, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to be very clear on safety. We're going to continue our education because schools are closed where our kids are going. We're going to do that in a safe way. We're going to support our foster parent. I mean, I failed to mention that if you're an SOS foster parent, I go back to that question about the neighborhood, um, your only job is to, to be a, a parent. So you know, we have couples and all versions of couples and everything else that come in. But, but if you're the SOS parent, this is your full-time job. We provide you training and resources, just like you, you would if you were a healthcare professional working in a hospital, um, you know, to learn your skill and your trade and work with the birth parent and so on. So um, I think we're going we're gonna to continue to do that and get through that. I think the future is I want to stop building villages. I, I want to continue to focus in upstream on how do we get to parents birth parents that are really at risk and what's going on so they don't and the kids don't have to leave their home. And how do we, you know, I think we've seen this in, in, in a policing, how do we redistribute resources so that that child can find and be safe in a home with a family member and if, if we give those resources there. And so I think the vision I have is, and I apologize, I took a plain SOS here, I was in healthcare for a dozen years. And I, I saw, you know, the, the shift that was going on in healthcare, if you think about it, was stop sending people into hospitals. There's other alternatives. There's day clinics, there's other things you can do, there's wellness training and so on. So the hospital becomes kind of the last choice or the, you know, when there is a crisis. So I see foster homes like that. Um, but if we can set up community resource centers, so families at risk early on and things going on and begin to address that, then it's a whole different vision. And we'll need hospitals and we need homes for children in foster care, but we can create other ways that are much more humane, much more um, value-driven for the children and their family to address things early on than wait until the crisis happens. So that's what I, I see as the vision going forward is that you know, our villages are our villages, but we have wellness centers and family strengthening centers and communities where other foster parents and birth parents can say, I've got this issue going on. Here's what's going to help me now rather than wait for this to get work. I, I remember when I was in healthcare, you know, uh, I, they were at St. Anthony's Hospital in the city areas where poverty was very high. And if someone was on public aid and had diabetes, you help them a little bit. But then you could, you'd have to stop helping them. And, and the next time you'd help them is when they had to get their foot amputated because the ulcers got so bad. In many ways, that's what the foster care system is. We allow things to fester out there with family and so on and on. 
resource, mental health, parenting class, so on. And then we end up paying for it significantly. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. Is uh, you know, in the medical field, they talk a lot about if you have an injury, you don't just treat that area, but you kind of treat the area around it to strengthen. I think of that a lot the same way of what you were speaking to there is, uh, you know, it's not just about, okay, let's get them a home. We also have to educate them. We have to feed them. We have to love them. We have to make sure their mental health is in a good place. And so there's so many things that it's like, you know, it seems not that it seems easy. I think people know that it can be very difficult to to care for kids who have been in bad situations or even, you know, a wide variety of situations. It's not just all traumatic, um, but, you know, certainly there are a lot of needs to consider and a lot of things that we have to say, okay, this takes a lot of work. And and can you share with me a little bit about if, if someone's sitting there going, wow, I really want to get involved. I really want to help this organization make a difference and, and keep doing what they're doing in our current landscape. How can people partner with you to do that? Um, and as we've been celebrating this Giving Tuesday season, we'll put um, links on our, our website and, and all of our social media so that uh, you can find the the organization, but can you share how they can help you in this time um, do what you do? Yeah. So, and, and, and Nathan, I, I want to preface it by saying, you know, thank you, not just for having me, but for everything you do. Uh, you know, Chicago is a bunch of neighborhoods and the neighborhoods, their stories, and you're allowing those stories uh, to bridge, you know, the differences between us and, and doing that. So I, on behalf of everyone you've had on this show and you will, I'm very grateful for my opportunity, but also that you're doing this. Uh, speaks a lot so but to answer your question um this is the sounds like the commercial part of the <laughs> yeah uh if you visit sosillinois.org so sosillinois all spelled out as one word dot org and then i will give your listeners my direct line I, I like i said there's only two steps between me and the parent uh and someone could call and if they don't want to go through the website and want to call and engage in conversation uh you can certainly call my direct line uh, which is 312-704-1320. So it's 312-704-1320. And I can certainly talk to you and, and you know make sure that what you would want to do. And of course, obviously, the issues right now with COVID safety and things like that. But there's, there's all sorts of ways to mentor a young person, see what's going on, support a foster parent, uh, you know, and, and kind of help them with, with education and activities or there are even certainly limited tours and like that. Um, so we're, we're only, we're only limited by our imaginations to ways to help out. Uh, Tim, it's been really good talking to you today. It's been just kind of therapeutic for me, but I, I know that, uh, that people have really gotten a lot from, from what you shared and these just provide so much hope and they just really are inspiring. So you know, we love what we do because people ask us all the time, you know, why is a law firm doing a podcast? And we're like, this is why, because there are so many stories that need to be shared and, and we can do it. So we're going to. Um, and so, you know, thanks for, 
thanks for the encouraging words. We really do appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate your time. We know it's your greatest resource. And so your whole team's been, been just marvelous to work with. And so we appreciate your time and your words. We always ask that, uh, that our guests leave us with a closing thought. So if you have, you know, you have the next minute to share, you know, whatever you want to the world. So this is your time. So if there's one thing you want to leave people with that you really want them to understand, you know, what would you say to our, to our listeners? My goodness, that's a lot of pressure. I didn't know this. <laughs> I, I, I think something I said earlier this morning, I, I, I met with people and, and um, I don't know why, uh, but I came up, you know, I stumbled on this quote from Gandhi um, and, and it was a thought for me for the day. It, you know, it, he said, and I was paraphrasing, so I'm going to screw it up. But basically, the quote is, you know, um, if you lose patience, um, you begin to lose the battle. And uh, I said to our parents and everyone else, we're in the business of slow miracles, you know, things that happen, cultivate and develop. And I think this whole COVID thing is we can't lose patience because we will lose the battle. We will be patient and persistent in the goodness of who we are uh, to really create greatness and to see it in the next generation of people. And I think to me, uh, that continues to hope. So, and, and like I said, I think, I think what you're doing part of is telling that story that did dawn on me when you were saying that, that Aristotle said the function of law is the common good. That's the, it's to protect the common good. So it makes sense to me that a law firm is protecting the common good. <laughs> we love what we do and especially when we get to talk to to great people who are doing big things in our community so again thank you to you and your whole team there uh, we hope that uh, our listeners are inspired to get connected if not with with you guys then with someone else and another organization um, we've had many on the podcast this year so we've been very lucky to hear from a lot of great leaders in the Chicago area and so be sure to check out the website www.bridgingchicago.com for more information on how to get involved. We thank you again for listening. Thank you, Tim, for your time. Certainly appreciate it. This episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.